Welcome to Tactical Recon, the place where we find kingdom-building strategies through scholarship, leadership, and action. And here's your host. Today is Friday, December 31st, in the year of our Lord's Dominion, 2021. Welcome to Tactical Recon. I am Elder Paul Coviello. Sitting beside me is my pastor, the Reverend Dr. Paul Michael Raymond, and Ron Kranz, pastor, missionary, and author whose book, Fighting to Win, is a must-read for all of you. Welcome, Ron. Give us a rundown. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I wrote the book um, based on uh, years and years of doing missions in Africa and Central Africa, South Africa, places that are war-torn. And I uh, approached it from a position of spiritual warfare. What are the common things that we come up against as believers in our walk? And what's the biblical response? What struck me, Ron, as I went through it is the notion that the church is inert, effeminate, disengaged, to the point where you spoke, wrote against those who sit in the churches and whose religion is defined solely by personal piety. Well, I did, actually, and I had to struggle with that because I'm, I'm taking an internal critique is what I'm doing, and it's, it's hard to come up against such a you know, the behemoth that has, uh, that's become the culture, the, in, the industry of Christianity today. Um, I approached it from what's the biblical response to our situation. And then I compared it to what we see in the culture of Christianity. And then finally, well, I talked about it from the eyes of Nehemiah. I think you remember that. I talked about Nehemiah and his response to various attacks, like, for instance, seduction, uh, and yeah, intimidation, escalation of attacks. And then I compared that to the work of Jesus Christ and how he dealt with those attacks and showed the difference of the way the church today is responding in comparison to our biblical heritage. Well, let me chime in here and read something that you wrote here on page 69. You said, anything that does not have as its first priority the kingdom of God and its righteousness will submit to the enemy for the sake of self-preservation. After all, we tend to hit the target at which we are aiming. So the duty of the believer is not self-preservation. It is not to soothe the feelings of those who resist the Lord. It is not seeking a worldly happiness and safety. And it is not even evangelism, but rather that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed and recognized all over all things and in all places. And then you end by saying this, anything less will always bear the same fruit of defeat and retreat. Now, those are powerful words that the church, the evangelical church of Jesus Christ today does not hold uh, reverential. They, they look at only um, our pietism, our self-preservation, our me and my Bible kind of theology, whereas the true church the, the first century church, the Puritan church, the church of the Reformation, the true church of Jesus Christ speaks of the gospel of the kingdom, not just simply the gospel of me and my Bible or the gospel of pietism, but the gospel of the kingdom whereby Christ claims dominion over all realms. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So when we, uh, I just went when you were talking to Psalm 89 and the 13th, 14th verse, rather, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. We're hardwired 
as made in his image to seek righteous and righteousness, justice, mercy, mercy, and truth. We're hardwired in that direction. So first of all, to the beginning of that comment, we will serve somebody. We will seek uh, righteousness, justice. We did the, uh, we went to the Black Lives March uh, in back one of them in D.C. And I was telling and pointing them out the fact that they're not Sharks are not marching for justice for George Floyd. There's a reason we are hardwired. We have a desire to, for justice that comes from our Creator. And if we don't seek that from our Creator, we'll seek it from someone else. But they're not going to love us. They're not going to love us like Christ does. They're not going to treat us like the Lord does. They'll seek it from political leaders or the courts or something that is secular rather than something that is above. Precisely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said this also. You said the work of Christ is not simply designed to comfort people with forgiveness. It goes much deeper than that. And then you say the redemptive work of Christ exceeds the boundaries of escaping guilt and propels his people forward to the victorious work of casting down strongholds. That must take place outside of the congregation, as well as within the congregation and the mortification of sin and the, the, the care and, and the comfort of God's people. But it is the church. It is and it should be the armory of God to equip and then send out in order to engage the culture to cast down those strongholds. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. An example. Well, you actually did say it. Actually, I did say it. I did say that myself. I agree with myself. Um, and I agree with you. Uh, and your synopsis of that, a, a good way to understand that is to go to your local church, go to your local midweek prayer meeting and see what people are praying about. What are they praying about? Health, safety, security, their job. What do you think Muslims are praying about? They're praying about the same thing. We don't have any distinction between what we want and what the pagans want. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these will be added to you. He starts with the kingdom of God. It always starts with the kingdom of God, not the individual person. And so that's critical in understanding our walk. And you said this in your book on page 141, the highest goal for the believer should be the advancement of the kingdom of God on earth. And that's a key phrase, on earth, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as it is patterned in heaven. You say on earth and that Christ should be rightly obeyed by all. Without the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, how, how could that ever be effectuated if it's sequestered in the four walls of the church? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's just too much scripture that speaks of that, that even in Revelation, we read that Jesus Christ is the head of the rulers of the kings of the earth. Uh, we see Jesus Christ saying in the Great Commission, all authority is given me in heaven and earth. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all. You notice the repetition of the word all, 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 all. It's not, it's not just in this one realm or in your, as I like to say, and you'll forgive uh, the phrase, in your punk and heart. It's not just in your individual life and in your personal piety, which boils down, which becomes made a caricature of anyway. When we, when we don't start with the kingdom of God, we wind up making a caricature of the gospel of Jesus Christ and reduce the work of Jesus Christ to things like holding the door open for my wife, or which is fine to do, but that doesn't, that's not the right response to a crucified, resurrected, ascended, ruling king. The right response to the ruling righteous king of, righteous king of 
of Jesus, kingship of Jesus Christ, is to press his rights into every area. And that should be the object of the church. You know, the sad irony is that we see so many people outside of Christendom doing that very thing. And the only time the church really mobilizes is when abortion or homosexuality is the issue on the table. I had a conversation with a friend and business owner here, Ron, who said, you know, beyond mobilizing against homosexuality and abortion, I'm really not comfortable. To which I replied, if you can accept the infallible mind of God through his law for those two issues, how can you surrender everything else to the corrupt mind of man and allow them to destroy our culture. Amen. And um, I have in front of me a religious exemption that one of our guys needed to get for uh, for his religious exemption for the for the jab. And this is very important. It, it ties into what you said. This is according to their own their own that his employer says. And I'll read the quote. Please note that an exemption will not be granted. When opposition to the immunization is medical, scientific, political, philosophical, ethical, or otherwise secular rather than religious in nature, this begs the question, exactly what does Jesus have the right to rule over if he doesn't have the right to rule over ethics? He doesn't have the right to rule over medicine, science, politics, or philosophy just exactly what does Jesus have the right to rule over? And it could have only gotten this place. I can only get a piece of junk letter like this because in the path of the retreat of the church is because we've, we've escaped from politics. We've run away from politics. We've run away from ethics. We've run away from science. And so we have these people on the, uh, when we do campus ministry, challenging us and saying, well, you know, we, we believe in science. So do I. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of knowledge. There's a science lesson for you. Want, you want to be scientists. So we haven't, they're only doing that because in the path of our retreat. So thanks for acknowledging that. Yeah, it's very important. It's interesting how uh, Christians today, they, they gravitate toward Christ's benefits, the benefits of salvation, rather than gravitating toward the Christ. Because I believe that if they gravitate toward the Christ, they have to, they have to come to terms with his sovereignty. His sovereignty, as you said, over all things. You say in your book, next to the public preaching of the word, challenging ungodly authority figures is probably the second most recurring activity mentioned in, in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You go on to say this, almost immediately and throughout the book, the Acts of the Apostles, there is a continuum that involves the disciples calling the governing principalities to be examined by King Jesus and his gospel. In fact, the apostles actively sought out the highest ranking officials in the civil and religious government. This is what the church has failed to do. They've become apolitical. And yet the, the Bible is, is full of political principles and precepts. You think about from the beginning in the book of Genesis all throughout the book of the Kings and Chronicles, even in the New Testament, we're calling out Herod. We're calling out uh, the uh, Festus. We're calling out Caesar. We're calling out Agrippa. We're calling out everyone who's in the civil realm. So how can even a church that claims itself to be a New Testament church, which I don't believe there is such a thing, to have just a New Testament church, you're, you're eviscerating two-thirds of the Bible, even those who claim to have only a New Testament theology 
can't get around the fact that Christ and his people have challenged the civil realm because there is no such thing as a secular realm. It's all, it's all uh, sacred because Christ is Lord of all. You know, the question is, which body of theology is going to dominate? That's exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, just from the, just let's make a political statement. Jesus is Lord. That's a political statement. That's not a, that's not a, a Lord of what? I mean, again, it begs the question, who is he the king of? And for and we, and this is really a big point that needs to be carried out to the body of Christ. It's not only shouldn't we be conceding those things, we have no right to do so. You have no right to give away. If I were to, if if I were to take the keys to your car, Paul, and say, give them to a stranger, it wasn't my car to give to them. Our sacrifice of the culture to itself is a is is dereliction against Christ and His throne. In fact, it's uh, it's a wholesale abandonment of the commission that Christ first gave to the apostles and successive generations of the church because he sent out the apostles and every subsequent generation on the basis of his divine authority. All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. And he says, go ye therefore into all the world, right? So we have the right, the privilege, and the responsibility to assert the dominion of Christ over everything over which he has authority, accepting nothing. Amen, and that's and 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 it's just that simple. Now, if I can just take a take a sidebar uh, for a second, and and we'll pick it up wherever you guys want to. I um have been receiving a lot of messages over the past couple of years, and I just released another book, um, and people are congratulating me and saying what a good writer, what a good Christian writer I, I am. And I praise God for that. But sending my wife turned up my my GED yesterday. That's my graduate. That's what I, I, I have a general equivalent diploma from Virginia from 1985. And this might entertain you, is that I barely passed. And I passed. And what I barely cleared the bar on was writing. I could barely, I'm, that's about as low as the bar gets. And the reason I say that, and I'm compelled to say so, is think of the word of God, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So I just want to just take a second and glorify Christ, you know, because if there be one good thing to come out of me, if there be one good thing, it's because he worked in my weakness. And so I just praise God. Just wanted to take a second to acknowledge him. I think that. that's the power of being humble before God. Once you finally are humbled from, from whatever it is, and you, you and I spoke about this this afternoon, when you're transitioned from the old man to the new man, you have a psychological issue where you realize where you were headed and where you are now headed. And that is a humbling thing to know that, to know that we have been taken out of the, the grip of hell itself to be translated into the, the newness of his life and to have the light of the gospel given to us, that's a humbling thing. And to recognize, Calvin always said, that two things you need to know, 
you need to know yourself, and then you need to know you need to know Christ. Okay, but too many people don't know themselves. They they don't know where where who they are or where they were headed naturally under the power of the old Adam. And I think we need to recognize that. And if we truly have recognized that, we won't be puffed up. We'll we'll be humble, recognizing that that you couldn't write when you were a young person that you, you, your bar was low. When, when I was, when I was growing up, I needed tutoring and reading. I couldn't read. So, so we see that God takes the foolish things. God takes, and I know I'm not an academic, you're not an academic. And, and yet the academics have all become right ivory towers where, where they have not that humbling experience. And only the spirit of God can do that. And you're right to glorify God, to, to thank God for the spirit of God working in his people, to engage them to recognize who they are, and then to empower them. And, that, and that's important because Pentecost empowers the church, that, that organic church, the, the organism of Christ's body, to not only establish, but then to maintain Christendom. And that's another word that we, we don't hear all that much either, Christendom. Well, well, why can't we start using that word and thinking along the lines of building back Christendom in our local communities, and then in the nation itself. I think we need to start thinking that way, bigger, bigger, bigger uh, than just our local church and our local fiefdoms. You know what's incredible? Uh, you spoke about your humble background. If you think about it, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, learned men who studied scripture, who were looking for the coming of the Messiah, Christ turned away for their hardness of heart, for the persistent rebellion, and equipped very humble men who following Christ's ascension up to heaven at Pentecost began a, 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 um, a mission that went incredibly far in some 30 years. And you'd mention them in the book of Acts on the way, taking on kings, rulers, the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees. They would stop for nothing. They would stop for nobody. And that's very critical to understand. What did, what did Peter say? When he was told not to preach in the name of Christ, he said, no, 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 no. We'll obey God and not man. That's right. That's exactly right. And they were empowered, just as you said, in a way that they would not have been otherwise. It's not a natural work. At the Pentecost, Peter says the promises to you and to your children and those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. He never designed it. The gospel of the kingdom was never designed to rest on a person. It was designed to move forward, equipping people in ways that they otherwise would never have been. Except the God-man, which is what Christ told Peter upon this rock. And the rock was the testimony that Christ was the Messiah, that Christ was the sovereign king of the universe. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's important. And, and that's always been the problem. Christ versus Caesar. Is it Caesar who has the power or is it Christ who has the power? And I think Christians have forgotten the, the supernatural reality of the king of nations and that he turns the hearts of the kings, whichever he wills. And, and we become to think as the state, as God walking on earth, rather than the body of Christ as, 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 as Christ walking on earth, because we are his body and, and he's the head. So he is actually walking on earth in the church, in, in the, the organism of the church, not the, the institution. So I think we need to start recalibrating our thinking recognizing that the power that uh, we have has been given to us to proclaim what is true. Whether we're afraid or not, we do what's right. And, and let, let's, be, let's be frank. There are times when 
naturally speaking, we come face to face with with violence and the authority of what can imprison us or destroy our families or whatever. And there's a fear there. And that has always been anticipated by Christ. Because for Christ to say, don't be afraid, is already anticipating that you will be afraid. You will already, already fear. But what he's telling you in the face of fear, don't be afraid. And that is what is deemed as courage. Because you can't be courageous unless you're facing fear. If you have no fear, how can you be courageous? So, so that's what I think the church needs. Courage. Spiritual courage, spiritual fortitude, so that we are able to address the state and tell them that the state is not God. Indeed. Um, one of the one passage that's meant a lot to me is in the book of Hebrews, where the Lord says, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But what so many don't understand is there's not a comma there. That's not the end of the sentence. It says, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the goal, to move forward in the face of that fear. Having said that, we'll pick up the conversation in the very next podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We pray that it was edifying. Until next time, may our Lord richly bless you. The Tactical Recon Podcast was brought to you by New Geneva Christian Leadership Academy and the Institute for Theonomic Reformation. To learn more, please visit our website at www.tacticalrecon.org.